Okay, so thank you everybody for joining in. Tonight, we are taking a break from our scheduled programming, and that is typically we uh, are following the Sidur. And most recently, we completed the morning section of the Sidur from all the way from Odani all the way until the the so-called Bakashot, right? The, the optional prayers, which people can say in the morning. Now, the... Tonight, instead of, because the Ashkenazim are going to begin saying Slichot Motzei Shabbat, I thought it would be appropriate to take a break. And instead of studying the um, the Sidor, we'll take a break and study the Slichot tonight. And we'll take a deep dive into the history of the Slichot, the awfully complicated history of the Slichot. And we'll try to come away at least, if not more informed, but uh, better prepared to study it ourselves. I want to give everybody here who has the ability, the um, information they need to go on and and uh, do your own research and to explore how amazing and how uh, deep and how far-reaching the history of the Salichot is. So <clears throat> if uh, just to define the term, if anybody here is new or if um, anyone listening to the, the recording or podcast or YouTube isn't aware, Salichot are a selection of prayers that Sfaradi men typically say, sometimes women as well, during either the month of Elul, as the Sfaradim do, or during the week uh, before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the weeks before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the in the Ashkenazi custom, where they'll do a section like its own rubric of prayer before the Shachrit. And the reason why this time of year is chosen is obviously because this is a time of the year which has a lot of trepidation, right? There's no secret that that uh, when Yom Kippur is coming, people feel Yom Kippur coming. When Rosh Hashanah is coming, people feel Rosh Hashanah is coming. And as the original Minhag was, people would awaken in the middle of the night. In the olden days, people would awaken in the middle of the night by the Ashmoret, so to speak, by the, by the third watch, which if you count the night, it was... Uh, Almost, uh, that's, you know, the first watch is, is, uh, is I believe, Tetako Chavim. The second watch is like three, four hours later, so like 11 o'clock. And then the next watch of the angels, so to speak, the Ashmoret, the, 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 the beginning of the next watch is like 2.45 in the morning today. So what people would do was, during these days of awe, when, when we were awaiting the trepidation of the, of the Amim Noraim, the high holidays coming, there was a sense or a need for this urgency to add additional prayers. And this is reflected uh, not just in the in the practice today where many people still wake up at night to do this, but also in, it's also reflected in the Minhag, in, sorry, in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, where the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah says explicitly that the, that the times between, um, betwi between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the Sereti Mei Teshuvah, are a time of Dveikut, right? Seek the Lord where he may be found. And th this time is a time when the individual has, not just the community, but the individual has a special um, uh, capability to come close to Hashem. So it was during this time of the year where there was an early institution to add a rubric of prayer to the daily prayers. Now, it should be noted that in the olden days, the 
idea of adding more prayers was typically, especially prayers of a penitential or um, origin uh, uh, nature, typically only occurred on fast days, meaning on a day where people were going to be uh, fasting, that's when they would add more prayers. And it is it appears in the Teshuvot of the Geonim that during the Seretime Teshuvah, the original, um, the, uh, by the years of the Geonim, I mean before the 10th century, so like from 600 all the way to the year 1000, the common practice was that many people would fast during those days, not every day as much as people could. And some people would even fast uh, before Rosh Hashanah. So those days which had fasting in it, people couldn't tolerate the idea of having a fast day without extra liturgy. And therefore, it was apropos that in the time of the Geonim, there was a birth of an extra liturgy for um, for these fast days or for these days of Aserity Mei Teshuvah because they were considered uh, very uh, auspicious and, and a very important time. Now, during this time, most during the time of the Geonim, like from the year 600 roughly to the year 1000, most of Jewry, uh, most of the Jewish people, as you'll see here on my slide, were living under the Abbasid Caliphate in what's modern day Iraq. And there were, of course, Jews here uh, in the uh, here you have in the in the northern Africa, you have some Jews in Spain, uh, quite a few Jews in Eretz Israel. And in Italy and many in Alexandria and Egypt, but the bulk concentration of practicing Jews were in Iraq and specifically in the area here um, by the Euphrates River in Pumpedita, Nehada, Mechoza, Sura. These were towns along the river and these were originally the cities which, uh, what's the word? Um, these were the original cities that birthed the yeshivot in in Babel, so to speak, in what they would call Babylonia. Eventually, those yeshivot that began in Pupadita and Arda, Surah, they moved to Baghdad. And it was in, ba in, in Baghdad when the Abbasid Caliphate moved his headquarters there that, that those yeshivot thrived. So it appears that sometime in the 700s, possibly earlier in the 600s, there was this push or to create this form of liturgy early in the, um, late at night for these fast days. Now it's 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 it seems clear from the Tishuot of the Geonim that the fact that it's by the Ashmoret, right? That it's by let me just minimize the um minimize something here. Um it's 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 it seems that the fact that it's by the the Ashmoret, so to speak, or the the third watch of the angels doesn't seem to be the point, right? We, we do know that the Gemara in Brachot brings that David Hamelach would would rise at the Ashmoret at the at the watches to sing Tashem, right? This idea of waking up in the middle of the night to, to cry for the for the Beit HaMikdash. The, so, so, to, today, people would call it Tikkun Chatzot or something of that nature. And we know that that's an auspicious time to wake up at the, at the Ashmoret. But from the Tishuvot and the Geonim, it doesn't seem that that was the point. One of the Geonim, I believe it was Mark Cohen Sedek, was asked, why don't why is it that you're doing it in the nighttime? Why don't you do it in the daytime? Somebody who was like really yeshivish asked him like, People are going to go to work on a fast day and they're just going to do nothing on a, on a fast day. They're going to go to work. You should do it in the middle of the day. Let them dive in on a, on a fast day. And he answered, uh, very cute, but, you know, people really have to work. And if we if we add slichot to the daytime, no one's going to come. People have to get to work. So it's better we do it in the middle of the night, wake up everybody. They all go to shul. They do the slichot and then they'll go home and they will. Uh, uh, what's the word? They'll enjoy their. um. Uh, 
their the rest of their sleep and wake up for shachrit and they'll be able to work during the day. That was that was the rationale. It doesn't seem like he, they had any objection to doing the slichot by day, even smack in the middle of the day. That was there wasn't any objection to such an idea. Uh, the point was to make sure that people could, um, to make sure that people could feel the importance of those ten days the, of those aseret made to shuvah. And especially to give them a liturgy for an extra liturgy for those fast days. Now, it wasn't the only liturgy. First of all, they made Slichot special. They would put Ashrei in the beginning and they would put Kaddish at the end to make it feel like it was its own, you know, rubric, as if it's its own tefillah. And also there were also there were extra tachinot or tachnunim they would add into the regular shachrit on a fast day. However, um the the core additions were done in the middle of the night. Okay. So that's what was happening in the early 600s, 700s, and 800s. This practice of doing this in the middle of the night wasn't called selichot at that time. It was called ashmorot or ashmoret, um, and it was called rachamin or the seder rachamin. They didn't have the name selichot at that time. And something that might surprise you if you're if you're used to the idea of studying um, Jewish liturgy or Jewish piyot, you might know that the the homeland, the 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 the, the motherland, so to speak. Of, of Jewish piyot began in Eretz Yisrael. However, the selicha proper, um, most, most recently scholars have proven that the selicha, the type of piyot called a selicha, did not originate in Eretz Yisrael. Most of these, um, not only the, did this practice of Ashmoret and Rachamin, all, all, this entire practice that they were doing in Bavel not begin in Eretz Yisrael, but the type of piyot, which is separate from Rachamin and Ashmort, a type of piyot called a selicha did not exist in Eretz Yisrael. They had kinot, they had similar things, but that did not exist. So how did the Ashmoret or the Rachamin get the name selichot? If originally they didn't have anything to do with the piyotim of selichot, how did it get the name selicha or selichot? So this is a very, very complicated history. So the original nature. Let's let's um let let's imagine that I could open up in front of you. Um, I can't because it's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna drain our time. But imagine we would open up together the seder of Sadia Gaon or the seder of Amram Gaon, right? The two Gaonic sidurim from that era, from the eight hundreds and the nine hundreds. If you open up a halacha sefer about what the seder is like, and you look at the seder of the tefillah from those from those centuries. What you're going to see by this so-called Ashmoret or this so-called Archamin is not a piyot in sight. What you're basically going to see is a whole series of litanies, right? This is like uh, a litany is like a simple poem, like Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Ata or Anenu Avinu Anenu, right? Or Rachmanad Karlan Bidil Viavor, Bidil Viavor. A litany is a very simple poem with a very easy refrain where it's very easy for the congregation to um, join in. Uh, in the prayers that the that the Chazan is saying, because they're not going to know all the words, only the Chazan is going to know the words. So litanies were a great a great way of of really bringing the congregation into the uh, into the the prayers. And the next thing you'll see is many pesukim. If you look in those sidurim, you'll see the you'll see the Yud Gimel Midot Rachamim, right? You'll see Tefillat Daniel, right? The Hashem Shema Hashem Selacha Hashem Akshiva Vasel Teachar. You'll see Salah Tfilat Moshe. And finally, you'll see these very old, very simple piyutim, like Hashem Nimikolam, Boshni Mikol Mikol Goya, 
Tamanu Miraot, right? These very simple, very old piyutim, which don't have any rhyme. And these these were used to introduce the Yudgim Omidot. So that's basically what you have in these old Ashmoret um, uh, prayers. But you don't find the piyutim or the, the, the full poems that we would call Salichot today, like Imafes Rova Hakein, if you're Sfaradi, right? You'll know that piyut. Mache Omase is not in so many of the early ones. Um, or you'll have... Um, uh, plenty of the the Shlomo Habavli, Elia Shemaya, or any of the the famous piyutim that the Ashkenazim say, they're nowhere to be found in these older Ashmorot. So what exactly happened? So the first scholar to really study, well, let's let's go slightly in the order of the scholarship. So the first scholar to really study this um, this topic was Reb Daniel Goldschmidt. Reb Daniel Goldschmidt was a trained philologist who was a incredible, one of the greatest scholars that ever lived, who studied uh, Jewish liturgy and Jewish poetry. And um, his studies took him towards studying the slichot of the Ashkenazic rite. He was looking for the Ashkenaz um, way of doing things, really, in the history of how the Ashkenazim did it. And in the beginning, he does give a fairly nice introduction to what he believes is the history of the slichot. And just from looking at it with a philologist's uh, eye, his understanding is that the original Ashmoret began with the core being the Pisukim. The core of it was reciting verses of mercy. And, the, and I'm just showing here on the screen, a you, his book is completely out of print. The Mossad Harav Cook put it out in Tashin Chafei, which is, I think, 1966 or 1965. And you can't find it. It's really not printed anymore. But if you go to Otzer HaChachma online, you could find this Seder HaSlichot, Kimin Hagla Lita, and the Kilot Prushim Baret Yisrael. An incredible work, an incredible critical edition of the Slichot. So his in his introduction, he makes the uh, assumption that these Pesukei Derachami, so to speak, these original Pesukim, uh, or verses from, from Tanakh, which contained verses of supplication, of penitence, those were the original core of the Ashmoret, and they built upon that other litanies, like in order to accompany them, like Bildil Ve'avor accompanied uh, Ve'avor, um, and Anenu accompanied other Pesukim, and all, all of those those uh, litanies and short poems were there really to accompany uh, the Pesukim. Eventually, when Selichot were added to this uh to this, let's call it liturgy, when when Silichot were added, the focus switched over to focusing on the poetry and the poems were the main thing. And the Viavor was almost like the separation between the poems and it was the, the, the tafel, right? So the poems, the Slichot became the, the, the main and the, uh, what's it called? The the Pesukim became the secondary. Now I should I should note that if you think about this historically, the earliest piyutim we have that you could even call a slicha most likely come from the ninth century. There might be some from the eighth century, but those are it's very late in the in the um, in the uh, what's it called in in the history of Jewish poetry. The idea of a slicha or a poem which asks penitence to God is fairly late. And what Rav Daniel Goldschmidt um, notices is that, of course, the Ashkenazi ones, as is typical of Ashkenazic poetry, the Ashkenazi ones always come forward with the 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 speaker of the poem is always coming forward on behalf of the congregation. He's speaking for the community. And therefore, because he's speaking for the community and he's speaking for the kahal, he's always in the plural. And he is 
um, beseeching on behalf of the community that sinned and is going through troubles that they should be uh, forgiven by God. So what you end up end up finding in a lot of these early Selichot type piyutim is that they often will mention a lot of uh, uh, oppressions that are contemporary to the Paitan. However, with the Sephardic ones, the Spanish poets were a lot more, I wouldn't call it a lot more artsy, but a lot more um, uh, Spanish. And theirs were very personal. And for the Spanish poets, it wasn't Knesset Yisrael. It wasn't the, the, the congregation of, of Israel calling out to God. For the uh, Spanish poets, it was one soul calling out to God. And it was a person on a deep, intimate connection uh, praying to Hashem from with Devekut, all the way from his soul. So you don't find as many mentions of Edom and Yishmael and, and obscure allusions to persecutions that happen. If you open up, uh, I have here, for example, the Slichot of Eliab Shmaya or of Shlomo HaBavli, you'll find all sorts of things that were happening in Southern Italy in the 900s, you know, all sorts of politics, even though it's alluded to, but it's there. And you'll, the Ashkenazim who still read these today uh, might find that while the Sephardim won't find any such thing. Okay, so again, let's just to recap. We have the we have a Gaonic era innovation, which begins in Bavel, right in uh, northern Mesopotamia or Iraq in the Abbasid Caliphate. This minhag is called the Ashmoret Udurachamin. This was a group of liturgy. This was a, a a fixed liturgy which would happen at night. It was very simple, and then later it became a little bit more complex, where more poetry was added to it. And possibly that's why it became called the Silicha. That's why it became called uh, the Slichot, because the poems which were called Slichot were added to it later, especially, for example, Yosef ibn Abitur is one of the famous first um, poets who added Slichot to these litanies, to these um, uh, uh, po uh, poems. However, um, let me... Ah, yeah, let me just let me just show you here. This is uh, the Gemara Shoshana Daf Yudzayin a bit. Um, Daniel Goldschmidt goes ahead and and everybody who studies this really goes ahead and mentions this Gemara, which talks about the power and the importance of the Avor Hashem, and he uses this to bolster his his theory that the Pesukim were the core, because you see here in the Gemara, and I'm going to point to the middle here. Amir Biochanan il male mikra katuv iaf shalomro. Beautiful thing. So the idea is in this Kamara that when Hashem, when, when God passed over Moses' face, what it means is that Hashem taught Moshe that any time the Jewish people sin before me, uh, perform this prayer right, meaning the 13 midot, and I will um, forgive them. And Rabbi Huda says that there's a Mesorah, that we have a, a covenant with God, that whenever they say um, the Yud Gimel Mitot, they do not return empty-handed. So this Gemara is a great source for the importance and and the, the attachment that the Jewish people had for these Pesukim and for in, in Rabbi Goldschmidt's um, worldview, for him, this is what gave it the centrality. And this is why the Yudgim Midot were so central. In the Gaonic times, it's not clear that they considered it as holy as they did in the time of the Rishonim. Uh, it might be later in the time of the Rishonim where they first started to believe 
that you can't say you can only say it etc. Um, I we can discuss that tangentially another time. Okay. But then in the year 2017, that was Daniel Goldschmidt's work was probably some of the more, the the best work that had been done in a book. However, in the year 2017, uh, Professor Shulamit Elitzur of Hebrew University dropped a bombshell article in the Tarbitz magazine in uh, that's Shana Pedalid Choveratalid. So over here, it's pictured on the screen, and. The, the level of scholarship in this article really is, is difficult to explain with superlatives or adjectives. It's one of the most um, advanced pieces of scholarship I've ever seen in my entire life. It is roughly 40 pages long, and it, it just demonstrates such an absolute mastery and dominance over the field of Piot that it, it this kind of work establishes her as the as the um the final word on on Piot today. It's really astonishing to, to reading an article like this and seeing the level of, of Torah knowledge and, and scholarship is really um, intimidating or, or humbling. It's, it's absolutely incredible. But regardless, you can't speak about her in, in, a, in a vacuum. Her work here was an article about the, the origin of the slicha. And she's building upon the work, not just of her own work, but also on the work of some of her colleagues, like Avi Schmidman and Tova Bari. And what she believes is that although Goldschmidt was on the right path, the um, development of the Salicha was a lot more complicated than first meets the eye, meaning what we would call Salicha today and how the Ashmoret came to be um, that development was far, far, far more complex than one might think. And she does this by reverse engineering one of the earliest slichot that we have, one of the earliest uh, parts of the of the prayer that we have, which isn't even said in the Aserotimei Teshuvah. This is a prayer which is said in something called the Kiddushta of Yom Kippur. Now, let me, let's, let's, I'm going to start step by step just to clear up um the complexity of this uh, of this of this um, theory. So let's begin with this. In every Yom Tov davening, in the olden days, there was a minhag started in Eretz Yisrael called the kedushta. The kedushta is a type of piyot added to the Shmon Esrei of a holiday, and it would embellish the first three brachot and finally the middle bracha as well. Right, the kedusha tayom as well as the atakadosh. So on Yom Kippur. There was a feature of the Kedushta of Yom Kippur that began in Eretz Yisrael, which she calls the Sidre HaPesukim. These were a list of Pesukei Derachami, which were said with a poetic introduction to every set of words. So, for example, there would be a poetic introduction, then some words from the Torah, like Be'avar Hashem Opanav, another poetic introduction, and then more words from the Torah, like Tfilas Moshe, and then, and then again, and so forth. Svilas Daniel, etc. So this was a style built in Eretz Yisrael, and this was used in the Shmona Esres of Yom Kippur during the Kedushta, this, this so-called Sidre HaPesukim. Later, there was a special um, Sidre HaPesukim that was created in Bavel. You following? Not in Eretz Yisrael, because in Eretz Yisrael, they never did Slichot, they never did Ashmoret. 
a special type of Sidre HaPesukim that was invented in Bavel, specifically because in Bavel they liked repeating the Yudgim Midot. There was some something up with the Babylonian community that they thought that the Yugimu Midot were so important that you can't just say them one time during davening. You have to say it many times. So this type of um, poem, this type of uh, poetic uh, sub-rubric called a Sidre HaPesukim got imitated in Bavel and they created their own type for the Kedushta of Yom, of Yom Kippurim. And that own type, that special type, was designed to allow them to say Yud Gimel Midot more than once. How would they do that? They would interrupt the Sidre Pesukim. So let's say they got up to Yud Gimel Midot in the middle of the Sidre Pesukim. They would interrupt it, say a poem, and then lead into the the, the V'yavor again, and then say another poem, lead into the V'yavor again. And they would do the same thing with Tfilat Moshe if they thought it was important enough in that Seder HaPesukim. The next stage that occurred was um, the next stage that would occur was that they would also add viduyim into that seder. And then lastly, uh, it's not lastly, uh, penultimately, they took this practice that they that they created in Yom Kippur and they transplanted it into fast days of the rest of the year. So this idea of saying piyutim, which repeat the Yod Gimomidot over and over, right? Inside a rubric called Sidre HaPesukim, this was transplanted to the rest of the fast days throughout the year. Where would they put it into? Into the Salah Lanu, right? So if, let's say it's a fast day. It's a Tzom Gedalia. You're doing the regular Shmon Esrei. You get up to Salah Lanu. In the middle of Salah Lanu, they interrupt Salah Lanu during the Chazarat HaShatz with these Piyutim. And this is why in her belief, it got the word, the name Silichot. And Ad HaYom Azeh, until today, if you look at the, the, the Silichot that people read, uh, on a Tanit, they're designed to be inside Salachlanu. Both the Sfaradi and the Ashkenaz ones are designed to be inside the Salachlanu. Some Ashkenazi communities still do it today inside the Salachlanu. Unfortunately, after the Holocaust, uh, World War II brought an end to the original custom where the Ashkenazim would all originally put uh, all these Slichot into the Salachlanu. The Yekishashul still do it this way. But most Litvish shuls and you know other types of Ashkenazi communities have already stopped putting all the slichot into the into the slachlanu. But however, this the idea of adding poetry into the 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 fast day liturgy only comes from the poetry of Yom Kippur liturgy. So so far so complex. Let's move one more level of complexity. After the this minhag develops all the way from the Yom Kippur uh, davening, it finally gets transplanted to the Ashmoret or to the morning prayers. So the morning prayers of Aserite Teshuvah. So uh, let's just recap. First, there's something called the Sidre Pesukim, right? A special rubric, a sub-rubric for a special type of piyat for Yom Kippur. Then the Babylonians create their own because they want to add poems to be able to repeat the, um, the Yud Gimel Midot. Then they began adding viduyim to that poetry. Then they take this entire new invention and they transplant it to the regular fast days. And finally, they transplant it to the Aserit Yimei Teshuvah, probably because the Aserit Yimei Teshuvah were also fast days. And therefore, they would add that to the prayers of the Ashmoret. Now, let me show you for as an example, the the most important uh, Sidre Pesukim that she that she dissected and reverse engineered is the one called Erech Ata. This is the grandfather of the 
of all of the slichot that we say today, whether you're Sfaradi, whether you're Ashkenaz, all of it comes from this special Sidre uh, Pesukim, which I mentioned earlier, that was invented to repeat the Yurgim Omidot. It comes from this special piyut. I'm not going to go through the whole piyut. I'm only showing you the first three lines, but she she managed to uh, piece together from many different manuscripts from the Cairo Geniza. She was able to piece together almost the entire piyut in its totality. But you're going to recognize this if, you're, if you've ever prayed Slichot before. Why? Because Right? So the modern versions, they make that more complex. Because they've forgotten the original, um, what's the word? The original Nusach. However, what happened was, was that this... Um, Piyut began to be used as the introduction for the Yudgim Omidot. So if, let me just look at it together. We'll look at it together here. If you look at the first... <coughs> Sorry. If you look at the first line of And then that's the poetic introduction. Then that's the poetic introduction to the Pesukim, right? This is a type of prayer called Sidri Pesukim. Right, and he continues. Sorry, and they reply. This is a Rav Sadia Gaon saying, and and after and after this, they say slichot, and then they continue with the rest of the aleph bet. That, that's what Rabbi uh, Rabbi Sadi Gaon writes here in Arabic. Then herbinu l'vshol bikesh tirba denut zaak lefenu slach lanu slach na sorry chanoti slachti. That's the poetic introduction of the seder pesukim. And then the next part comes the pesukim. Right, kakatu b'toratach. This is tefilat Moshe slach na lavona mazeke godel chasadecha. And then finally, uh, the next in the next one, there's tefilat Daniel. So as you can see, this. This um, special Seder HaPsukim for the Yudgim Omidot is the great-great-grandfather of all the Slichot that everybody says today. It's an imitation of an, of an Israeli uh, special type of poetry. It was designed because the Babylonians liked saying Ve'avor Hashem. And eventually it evolved into a special type of introduction for the Yudgim Omidot themselves. So once we had a situation where you have poem, keler chapayim ata, and then yudgimol midot, and then again poem keler chapayim ata yudgimol midot, and then you have let's say uh, a simple or ancient poem like hashamnu mitaot tamanu tamanu hashamnu kolam tamanu mitaot. Eventually, a um, a more sophisticated system began to develop, and when this uh, minhag was finally transplanted into the litanies, that's when we finally find Yudgim Omidot into the Ashmarit. So in her belief, originally the Ashmarit didn't even include Yudgim Omidot. Unlike Goldschmidt, who, who believes that the Vyavar Hashem was core to it, in her opinion, this is what brought the Vyavar Hashem and Tfilat Moshe and everything into the Ashmarit. Originally, it was probably just litanies or it was more simple, but this really brought a real fame, framework into it. So again, this is an incredible amount of layers of generations, centuries, poetry to 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 speak of reverse engineering. Um, the theory is not bulletproof. There are areas where you can uh, possibly add your own theory, but for what it's worth, the discovery and the reconstruction of this very important seder hapisukim sheds a tremendous light onto the earliest development of the selichot. Okay. 
So we've discussed the Ashkenazi research. We've discussed the early Gaonic research. Now, how about the Sephardi research? So there's a rabbi in Eretz Yisrael whose name was Rav Yitzchak Halevi Aviran. He also published a book on the Slichot, which also you can't buy in stores anymore. I'm so sorry. But it is also available for free on Otzer HaChochma. It is called Seder HaSlichot Kiminaga Sephardim Ubnei Edut HaMizrach. It is book number 61431 if you're listening to the recording and you're not watch, looking at the page. Rabbi Yitzchak Aviran, also religious, in his younger years, in Tafshin Nun, he embarked on his own little um, uh, hobby project of research, and he did some incredible work, honestly. He did some very important, very difficult work. I'm, I'm sure he was spent quite some time in the National Library of Israel to um, uh, to work on his on his book on the Svaradis Lichot. And what he comes away with is that up until the 16th, even the 15th century, it's very difficult to know how the slichot appeared or how they were recited by people in the Iberian Peninsula or people who we would call Sfaradi, right? Whether it was Turkey, whether it was, um, you know, was Turkish, Spanish, uh, today people call this Greek, but, but regardless, Portuguese, Northern African, how exactly did those people say slichot? Now we know that in the 15th century, the minhag became, uh, with the influence of the poskim, the minhag became not to do it just during the Sertimei Teshuvah, but also to do it uh, four days before if you're Ashkenaz and 40 days before if you're Sfaradi. Now, this wasn't the original minhag, really. It wasn't. Uh, some some Ashkenazim would only do a Sertimei Teshuvah and Erev Rosh Hashanah. Some would do from the 25th of Elul. Some would do um, from the from the 16th of Elul. Some Svaradim would do, I think, I, there's all different minhagim. I don't remember exactly. But eventually, the poskim endorsed certain minhagim, and those became the, the popular minhagim. But the way the, the earliest poskim speak about it is, Echad amarbev, echad amamit, As long as, it doesn't matter how much they say, how little they say, as long as, um, they have they have, their minds are as long as people have good intent and they want to worship Hashem, that's good enough. Now, this really does conform with just the nature of communal liturgy in that time. If you think about what it must be like in the, um, if you think about what it must be like in the in the in the Middle Ages in Europe. Most people before the printing press just didn't have sidurim, so it was the chazan who was leading all of these. Um, all of these, what's I shouldn't say exotic, but all of these special liturgies. So the average person just had to listen along and follow along. If you knew the words Bezil Avor, you said Bezil Avor. If you knew the words Avinu Malkenu, you said Avinu Malkenu, and you followed with whatever the Chazan did. So just like in Germany, <laughs> in Spain, many of the manuscripts, sorry, I should many of, the, the few manuscripts that we do have, of the Slichot from, from Spain, from the 15th century, many of those manuscripts contain very, very, very many Slichot because they were intended not for a layman, but they were intended for a Chazan. The Chazan would have his own manual. He would pick the Slichot and the order that he wanted to say, and that was it. People would do whatever the Chazan was in the mood of doing that day, and the Chazan was professional, and that was his job, to, to feel the crowd, you know what I mean, if, if you know what I mean. Chaim Sherman in the 1980s published a an article in in a in a in a magazine called in a book called Areshet, and uh, he found a manuscript in the University of Madrid 
which had 538 selichot. Can you imagine? 538. But that's, again, just a manuscript, and it's very difficult to know what people were actually saying during the Ashmorat or during the Slichot every single day. The other evidence we have from that time is, of course, the Incunabula, the, the earliest books that were ever printed. But these were not printed in Spain. Spain did not have any Jewish uh, printing presses, that at least not legal ones. And we don't find mass volume printing of Jewish books in Spain in the 14. Um, not well, not mass volume. Yeah, we don't find mass volume printing of of the Jewish populations in Spain in the 1400s. However, in Italy, we do find a, a mass um, a mass uh, volume printings for the Sephardic communities. And Rabbi Aviran found not him. I'm sorry. Well, really, Daniel Goldschmidt found and published a a sitter from the 1490s from Naples. This was a sitter that was really, really, really important to um to the to the Sephardic uh as you call it, Nusach, because it was one of the earliest printed Sephardic Sidurim for the Jews of Spain or the Jews who came out of Spain. And many later uh Sidurim modeled themselves after uh, this Siddur. And this is not the Siddur Eish Pebez, which, uh, which on its own is also very important. But this Siddur that you're looking at, uh, this is either a copy of this one or also this is a contemporary, either a contemporary Siddur or the Siddur. I couldn't really uh, tell when I was looking at this at this uh, bookmark. If it's either like literally contemporary, 1490 Naples, and it's either the exact right one or it's like a, a brother of it. Now, what this Siddur did is that this Siddur had an entry for the Slichot of the Aseretimei and of Elul. And in the Siddur was the skeleton framework of all of the things the Sfaradim say, right? The way we wake up and we say the, all, the, the Ashrei and the Viav, and the Viavor and the Bedil Viavor and the Elkeinu the Velshinu Laman Shemecha, all of the uh, here you have the Anche Amuna Avadu, Tamanu Meira Ot, Tabola Fenech Tefilatenu. All of the, skele- the, 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 the major bones of the Svaradi Slichot that we say today were there inside that Sidor. The problem is that that Sidor didn't seem to be putting in these uh, Slichot with any intelligent design. It seemed to be like a little bit formatted, but it wasn't really like a. Uh, it wasn't deeply thought out. It's not like the original Sfaradi order was, uh, you know, painstakingly thought of. I, th- I wonder if I could pull it up quickly enough just to go through the. Uh, the he he does he does list the exact order. Uh, I wonder if I could find it fast enough. He has a list that's worth. It's sometimes it's worth reading because if your Sfaradi would appreciate it, I feel bad for the Ashkenazim in the crowd. Uh, here we go. Now you know what I'll skip it for now because I'm not going to find it quickly enough. Regardless, after this, after this, um, this uh, sidur was published. Subsequent uh, sidurim that were published in Italy just simply followed the template of the earlier printers simply because it was easier. Um, you already had the typeset, you already had uh, the bones, and it was arbitrary. Yeah, it was just thrown together, but it was something, and so it just got added upon. And the later sidurim that were printed. For the communities as they escaped to Greece, 
And as they escaped to Northern Africa, many of the later volume printings were copying this earlier Sidur. And therefore, what we have today for the Sfaradi uh, so-called Slichot, that is 40 minutes long, uh, is really an accident of history. There is no intelligent design to the Sfaradi Slichot. For the most part, you have the Ashri in the beginning, there's a Kaddish, and then there's a Kaddish at the end, and then there's you know, there's certain sections of it that have always gone together, like the cycling of Anshea Munavadu and Taman Meiraot. There's certain sections of it. There's a Ve'avar before before uh, Bedil Ve'avar. There's a Ve'avar after. Some of those uh, structures and those, uh, let's call it, those um, juxtapositions have always been around, but it was never intelligently created. And therefore, the if you look at a Sfaradi Slicho today, there's about 39 components to it. And they really don't have any rhyme or reason. Some of the components were added in the 16th century and some even later. The majority of the excess stuff was added after 1490. It was added in the 16th century. In the 1500s, as the printing printed books got more, got more and more common, they added so many other things. And often, like even astonishingly, they borrowed from some Ashkenaz ones. Like Imaface face Rovaha Kane is from Refrain Bar Yaakov, if I'm remembering correctly. And that's like a, a completely Ashkenaz Salicha. For some reason, it made it in. Somebody wanted it in there, and it got in there. So, uh, the the this is in strong contrast, of course, to the to the Ashkenazi uh, slichot, because the Ashkenazi slichot had the same problem in the 1400s. There were way too many of them. There were hundreds and hundreds of slichot, and the Chazan used to do it. But when they printed the books, the printers actually decided to sit down with some rabbis and do some intelligent design. So it's not. Uh, it's not the it's not the greatest genius, but it, there is some system. They'll put the pesukim, they'll put a ve'avar, they'll put uh, depending on they'll put two slichos, one chatanu, uh, shamoniot, right? Depending on on what day it is and how close you are getting to Rosh Hashanah, there's a deliberate system. Now I can't I, I would be lying if I would say it's so deliberate because even Goldschmidt finds thirteen different uh, minhagim, but they were trying. The printers were trying to make a sort of deliberate system. Uh, for how you say this lichot, it wasn't perfect. It never will be perfect, and it never was perfect. And there's a, this there's this illusion today when you open an art scroll, or if you open a, even a Koran or any of the the modern slichot, there's an illusion that you have that there is that this always been this way, or that uh, this is this is how it must be done, and these slichot must be said on this day, and those slichot must be said on that day. But a lot of this stuff is really really arbitrary, and there's nothing. There's no uh, greater intelligent design to it, and you don't have to be so beholden to it. And I've always personally been um, very tempted to myself just to adjust the Sfaradi one because, you know, I don't know if one day I'll ever get uh, get paid well enough to do this, but the Sfaradi Slichot for many people are just too long. 40 minutes is really a very difficult amount of time. And as the Gonim said, people have to go to work. A 40-minute long slicha is is extremely difficult for a lot of people to do, and a lot of people just don't end up doing it. So if it were up to me, I would probably write such a thing, uh, maybe publish a slichot that could be divided within seven days. It does require people who have a an extensive background in, in the slichot, the slichot history, and, and the formation both, you know, in every single generation. So maybe it's a future project, God willing, one day. I'm assembling a team, you know, as they say, we can we can make a, a divided by day Sfaradi Slichot. Not because anybody's ever going to say it, but just, you know, to give people the option. Maybe I'm being too uh, idealistic, but that's that's uh, that's so much for the history of the Slichot. And if I hope that 
I hope you learned something. Um, if you have any questions about a specific minhag uh, that's done with the slichot, if you have any uh, questions about any of the specific pew team, please let me know. I'd be fascinated to delve into each one. However, uh, this was just a as much as we can into as little amount of time as possible kind of shoot So I hope that helps. And um, I'm going to pause now if anyone has any questions.